This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Madness has historically been pathologized and medicalized. More recently, efforts have been made to redefine what it means to be neurodivergent and to critique the role of institutions and stigma in labeling some people as quote-unquote mad. Yet people experience madness differently. Race, class, and gender, amongst other variables, help shape the embodied experience of madness. The mad movement has shaped academic discourse on madness. It has been a critical intervention which has allowed self-determination for mad people. It has sought to reclaim madness as a positive trait. What is missing from the analysis is an understanding of how race shapes and is shaped by modern conceptions of madness. Today, we discuss race and madness. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. I'm Joyita Gupta. My guest today is Sarah Redekop, who is a PhD candidate in the School of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at York University. Her article, Out of Place, Out of Mind, Minding Race in Math Studies Through a Metaphor of Spatiality, was recently published in the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. And this is her first time ever doing a podcast. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about this, not least because it is Black History Month. And just some weeks ago, we talked about Bell Let's Talk Day. So these ideas about the history of racism, colonization, and the impact of madness and quote-unquote mental health, I think are looming large in our public conversation. Tell me a little bit about how you got to thinking about race and madness. Yeah, so I have a background in women and gender studies, and and this is a paper that I wrote when I was doing my master's. So my doctoral research looks at uh, experiences of self-harm through an intersectional lens. So I'm necessarily drawing on insights from mad scholarship. And during my master's, I, I took a course in critical race studies, and I started to really think about um, about how race surfaces in discussions of of madness, of psychiatrization. So I think it's important that I know that I come to this work as a white scholar. Um, and, and so this article that I wrote, sort of thinking through how white supremacy, how the implicit whiteness of, of mad studies sort of sediments itself, it's really really sort of calling on, on other MAD studies scholars and, and white MAD studies scholars to really, really think about, um, about, about racialized histories of madness and the role of, of colonization and, and the development of psychiatry as a discipline in the foundation and formulation of what we think of as MAD and how madness is, is dispersed and experienced and organized and responded to, all of which are are really deeply shaped by logics and materialities of of race. Well, you you talked about mad studies, which may not be a familiar concept or field for a number of us. Tell us a little bit about what mad studies is. And you also talked about the mad movement. So how is that similar or different? 
Yes. So um, math studies is, is a fairly new area of academic inquiry. It sort of stems out of anti-psychiatry, psychiatric survivor, and consumer activism that really burgeoned in the 1960s and 70s. And it had a particularly strong foothold in Canada. So there's organizations like the Mental Patients Association, which was based out of Vancouver, organizations in Toronto. So MAD, the MAD movement um, is a very broad umbrella of organizing and activism. And um, I think the main thing that unites the MAD movement is a critical orientation to psychiatry, which um, is is really embedded in sort of a, a policing and a regulation of, of what gets count or named as madness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really sort of a reification of, of, of social norms. Um, so what gets labeled as mental illness is obviously socially constructed and contingent on, on power relations. Mm-hmm. So the mad movement is, you know, made up of various constituencies. So, Um, You know, we have folks that are anti-psychiatry and sort of really dedicated to the abolition of psychiatry as a carceral regime and sort of consumer and psychiatric survivors. So folks who have been harmed by psychiatry and folks who identify as mad, which is really sort of an umbrella term oriented towards, you know, reclaiming experiences of what gets termed mental illness mental distress, emotional distress as, as a site of political organizing um, mm-hmm. and as something that takes into account both the harms of psychiatry and sort of the devaluation of badness as, as a way of knowing and being. So MAD Studies takes those insights um, from the MAD movement a step further by sort of introducing them into academic thought. So so disability studies and MAD studies are related, but different. You know, I I tend to think of them as cousins. So so MAD studies is really a fairly new constituency of, you know, disability studies programs in universities, but it has a very long-standing, you know, a long, a long standing foundation in kind of left wing and critical social organizing in Canada and the United States in Europe around the world. And yet you mentioned that with mad studies, whiteness and white supremacy is so deeply embedded. What is getting left out of the conversation in mad studies circles when we don't effectively talk about race? I think, and, and this is a critique that has been sort of launched at or or framed at disability studies as well as something that is sort of, you know, what Christopher Bell refers to as constitutively white. And so what happens is in kind of circles and discussions of mad studies, mad activism, the struggle against psychiatry, is that a lot of the folks having these conversations are white they are largely white spaces. And, and, you know, that's certainly not to discount um, a burgeoning body of literature that um, Black, racialized, Indigenous scholars and activists are, are you know, coming out with. Um, I think there's been a lot more attention in, in the past five years or so to racialized experiences of madness. And that's 
incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Um, But what gets left out of the conversation when MAD Studies fails to account for the ways that race and racialization shape what gets understood of as MAD is that sanism as an oppression, as, you know, the sort of violence and, and oppression and devaluation of quote unquote insanity, um, you know, that's experienced differently depending on, on social location. And that's something that is incredibly raced. So we know that in our struggle against psychiatry, the groups that tend to be over-psychiatrized, over-medicalized, policed, incarcerated by psychiatry, those tend to be racialized groups. Mm -hmm. And we also know that racialized people experience um, disproportionate violence by by quote-unquote mental health responders, particularly when the police are involved. And, you know, those are necessarily questions that mad, mad scholars need to be grappling with, is that when we are looking to make meaning out of madness, who gets to access that meaning making? How does mad studies sort of stay white? Who gets to claim madness in a way that is safe and is meaningful? And how are we simultaneously critiquing psychiatry but also critiquing structures of settler colonialism, of white supremacy, of anti-Blackness that that sort of give psychiatry, you know, that teeth, that teeth to cause harm to people, to devalue the lives of, of, of racialized mad people specifically. So I, I think the whiteness plays a really big role in who gets to claim mad, madness, make meaning out of madness, and, you know, who gets to take up space in, in these conversations. And I say that tongue in cheek because, yes, you know, like I um, like I said at the top, I'm coming at this as a white scholar speaking to other white math scholars. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because you're right. In the last five years or so, there has been a lot of writing and thought from activists of color and people of color on the intersections between madness and anti-psychiatry and and racism. Why is it then so important for white scholars like yourself to have these conversations about whiteness and white supremacy in the mad studies and the mad movement? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when we hear the word white supremacy, I think it's it's very easy to, what comes to mind is that sort of very over intangible white violence and white rage. And there's, you know, increasing, increasing scholarship on the role of rage and in, in whiteness. And, you know, we're seeing that right now with the occupation in Ottawa. Um, mm-hmm. But I think when we're talking about white supremacy, we're talking about a material system, a historical system, an overarching structure that, you know, both informs, uh, it informs practices of settler colonialism, you know, the displacement and devaluation of Indigenous lives, Indigenous ways of knowing. It informs anti-Blackness. And and white, what white supremacy does is it makes whiteness invisible. And so when we have fields of inquiry that are critical and that are dedicated to, you know, social justice and equity outcomes, much like disability studies and MAD studies, you know, those fields are are predicated on a critique of power. But when we fail to account for the role of white supremacy in those fields, what we're really failing to account for is the ways that whiteness is invisible in those spaces because Mm -hmm. it is the norm. And so, when I'm talking about sort of white supremacy as a constitutive element or of 
like an underlying structure of of mad studies it's you know white supremacy makes it possible for for mad studies and for disability studies to be sort of quote unquote implicitly white because those are like the bodies and and you know kind of thinkers that are occupying those spaces so i think it's important to think about both the ways that white supremacy as an organizing structure makes it possible for for mad studies to stay white and a critique of white supremacy is important because, you know, white supremacy is, you know, it's predicated on assumptions, not only of, of quote unquote whiteness, but of ability, of sanity, of heterosexuality, you know, whiteness is slippery. And so mm-hmm. when we start to make whiteness visible, we start to look at, you know, how all of these various systems are working together to foreclose particularly racialized considerations of, of, of madness, of psychiatry, of care, etc. Sarah, I'm curious about this because with a lot of uh, people with disabilities and indeed with people who have been labeled quote-unquote mad, there's been a tendency to lock them up and throw away the key. Think about things like the sanatorium or the asylum where it was a way to sort of relegate space so that people who were labeled as being neurodivergent could basically be warehoused, for want of a better word. What role does space and spatiality play in a discussion about race and madness? Yeah, so I have always really, you know, been drawn to this idea of spatiality. And I think other scholars of madness have too. And so in my article, I sort of trace a brief, a very brief genealogy to, you know, the work of Foucault, who explored madness, you know, using this allegory of the ship of fools. And so in many ways throughout history, um, and other scholars have spoken of this too, space, um, you know, where you are in time, where you're supposed to be, where you're not supposed to be, that madness is spatialized in those ways. And so I think that spatiality is a really useful sort of metaphor and, you know, kind of material frame for looking at madness because, um, you know, you can be deemed mad by being sort of in the wrong place and the wrong time as, um, Foucault and Anne McClintock's work sort of points out. Let's t- take up a couple of the theorists that you brought up. You brought up Foucault and the Ship of Fools as a metaphor or an allegory, sorry. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, uh, about the allegory of the Ship of Fools. What is that all about? I think there's some dissension on, you know, sort of the historical reality of the Ship of Fools. Foucault takes up the Ship of Fools as, you know, this this material ship that would kind of float the mad who were cast outside of city limits, you know, they Mm -hmm. didn't really have a place to go. And the ship of fools would house them and, and sort of float them in, you know, in rivers along coastlines um, in Europe. And so in this way, madness was spatialized in that the mad were sort of disallowed from city limits. Um, And Anne McClintock takes that up in a similar way where in you know, colonial Africa um, and in, you know, the metropolis sort of city centers of of colonized, you know, colonized states, Mm -hmm. rural, like African women who sort of wandered into those city centers were deemed mad because they weren't meant to be there. And colonial psychiatry sort of has a history of 
I think, you know, the colonized were always already deemed mad. Right. Um, and yeah. colonial psychiatry certainly has some, um, you know, a history of, of, of labeling colonized folks as mad once they come into contact with quote unquote civilization. So the mm. underlying assumption there is that it's uh, like particular white folks who are able to sort of meet the demands of civilization and modernity and organization and productivity that are sane. And then anyone else who sort of falls short of that is deemed mad. And right. so when we're thinking about white supremacy as a spatializing structure, um, you know, we're thinking about like not only these kinds of, you know, like historical interventions that have thought madness and spatiality alongside one another, but also the very material ways that white supremacy literally spatializes access to education, healthcare, safety, resources, and, you know, like white supremacy, racial capitalism, settler colonialism, these things are all very material and have very material effects and, and, and they are maddening and they are disabling. And so by using a sort of a metaphor of spatiality, it's, it allows us to think not only of the very material ways that disability and madness are produced, you know, um, experiences of anguish or despair or trauma or depression, you know, those all are included in a sort of mad umbrella. And, uh, and it also sort of lets us get at the the conceptual space or the, the space that exists within mad studies, which, you know, is historically and, and, and presently very white, um, you know, the space available for, for um, critical race thinkers of madness to really take, take up those questions. And yet, you know, we are in this interesting moment where, at least during the pandemic, there's been so much talk about mental health and mental well-being. Uh, Bell Let's Talk Day has become something of an annual fixture. So, you know, in a way, I, I feel like we have discussions and discourses in the mainstream about mental health and madness and uh, everybody's mental well-being. But those discussions about racism don't seem to get taken up in the same way. We don't get that complex analysis, say, on Bellette's Talk Day. What do you think needs to happen to change the conversation? Um, you know, I think in terms of changing the conversation in, in the mainstream and in sort of self-identified mad spaces, it's, um, you know, it's very literally making space for racialized voices and mm -hmm. racialized experiences of madness, those kinds of things, like they need to be actively given room. And, you know, I think that it's important that white mad folks are able to sort of speak with each other about what it means to be white and also what it means to sort of cede space to to historically marginalized voices mm. um so that looks like supporting scholars who are doing work at the intersection of race and madness you know louise tam um adil abdullah abdullahi who is at ryerson university um lamar Jarrell bruce just published a really excellent book on um, madness in the black radical tradition and so i think that those voices really need to be absolutely centralized and at the same time white mad scholars need to be having hard conversations amongst themselves about how 
whiteness and madness interact because they do and and what that means in terms of who gets to take up space Mm -hmm. now you tell me if i have this wrong but i think one of the basic tenets around mad studies is to refrain from further pathologization of mad people and to try and treat madness as a for want of a better phrase, a normal facet of human, you know, life. If people have mm-hmm. moments when they are not as productive as other times in their life, and we don't want to stigmatize or label that as depression, or you know, use other labels to kind of stigmatize what is considered normal in the spectrum of human experience. When you consider that idea about what is normal and what is constituted as normal in terms of people's mental well-being and their mental health, I suppose. How does bringing race into the conversation widen opportunities to talk about everything that is considered normal or normative? That's a really good question. You know, I think bringing race into the conversation lets us get at the specificities of, of you know, what is normal or abnormal. So we know that historically and presently, like Black women have been disallowed access to sort of experiences of suffering or depression, you know, this idea of the trope of a strong Black woman. And so bringing race into the conversation in terms of what counts as a normal human experience, you know, it only widens widens the umbrella, like widens the range of of what we understand as, um, you know, what might get termed madness or Mm -hmm. sort of what experiences of suffering and anguish you know, bear importance, bear importance and bear, bear looking at. Well, Sarah, it's been really good chatting with you about this. It's a, it's a tough topic to wrangle. So I thank you for taking the time to speak to us today on the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Sarah Redekop is a PhD candidate in the School of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at York University. Her article, Out of Place, Out of Mind, Minding Race in Mad Studies Through a Metaphor of Spatiality, was recently published in the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. That's all the time we have for today. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.